Welcome to Crawl Space. I'm Tim here today with Lance. Lance, how are you today? I'm doing pretty well, Tim. Hope everyone out there is having a fantastic start to their week. How are you? I'm doing great, Lance. Thanks a lot for asking. I'm excited to bring our audience this interview. We've been covering the wrongful conviction of John Juca for a while now, really since the podcast started, I want to say back in 2017, Lance. We've done several episodes on the case. We've spoken to John from prison. We've spoken to John's mom, and we've spoken to his lawyer, Mark Bettero. And Mark Bettero is back today to speak about updates in John Juca's case. Unfortunately, the updates that he speaks about aren't exactly the ones that we were hoping for. Uh, he'll get into that because um, I think uh, he is probably one of the more thorough guests that we've ever had on the show. He's very uh, detail-oriented when it comes to explaining the legalese of, of the situation in a way where the average person like like ourselves can comprehend it. And listening to him speak about this and maintaining that optimism, that, that forward motion... While it is not the result and the outcome that everyone wanted with John's case, he, he still maintains that everyone picks themselves up, dusts themselves off, and he sees it as a good thing. And he's he has that attitude. I can't imagine a better lawyer for John Juca and for Doreen. Yeah, great call there, Lance. And you can check out his website at betterolaw.com. And it's a long road to fighting for justice in this case. And I found the interview extremely interesting. And like you said, he speaks in ways where someone like me, who's not a legal beagle, can understand the process even a little bit. Well, Tim, you are a regal beagle, <laughs> but maybe not a legal beagle. I'm a legal eagle. You're a legal eagle, but not a legal beagle. You're more like a regal beagle. <laughs> and Lance, we're going to CrimeCon this year. In Las Vegas, in April, the end of April, April 29th, we're going to be in Las Vegas at CrimeCon. You can visit us. You can visit CrimeCon. Go to CrimeCon.com and use code CRAWLSPACE and you'll get 10% off your standard badge. It's going to be a great time. We haven't done anything on this level, on this at this scale in quite a while. And Tim, for weeks now, we've been saying just how excited we are to see all of the listeners. Uh, it's been a while since we've done anything on this scale. Um, we'll have a couple of live podcasts, and we'll be over there with our new partners at Glassbox Media. They'll be representing us and the other shows that they have on their network. So say hi to those folks as well. Great people over there. And speaking of Glassbox Media, they're the ones who are working with us on our subscription service, our new one. We are moving from the Patreon platform to supporting cast. Tim, tell the listeners what they win. <laughs> Well, if they go to crawlspace.supportingcast.fm, they can subscribe to our new subscription service, which includes ad-free episodes, bonus episodes, and additional thoughts and theories on select episodes. And we'll do live AMAs as well. That'll be a lot of fun. Hope you enjoyed the episode. Follow us on social media at crawlspacepod or crawlspacepodcast. And to stay current on everything going on, from the law office of Mark Bettero. Swing over to twitter.com and follow him at Bettero Law. And again, you stay current to every update that he's got, including anything on John Juca.
Welcome back to the podcast. Mark Bedero, how are you today? Okay, thanks for having me back, guys. You had um, reached out to us uh, after some unfortunate news about John Juca, which we'll get into because um, we're definitely going to need to uh, get the definitions down and, and the explanation down. But how you been? Because it's been a little while since we last spoke. Uh, I'm fine. Uh, you know, can't necessarily say the same about uh, other people involved in this uh, sordid matter, but we're already working on yet again, correcting the injustice and moving forward. So all in all, we're okay. And before we get into the um, most recent twist, can you take us back a little bit and tell us a little bit about who John Juca is and why he is incarcerated? Well, he was uh, about a 19-year-old kid who was, after a lengthy investigation, along with uh, another guy named Antonio Russo, was arrested allegedly for murdering Mark Fisher, who was clean-cut all-American kid from New Jersey who ended up at uh, Juca's home with several other people. He ended up leaving with Antonio Russo, who is not a good guy. And uh, long story short, Russo ended up shooting and robbing and killing Fisher. And uh, the police had no witnesses for a great period of time. But after a year of uh, cracking skulls, figuratively, not literally, and shaking the tree, uh, they were able to produce Witnesses who were willing to, uh, under the pressure from law enforcement, say that uh, Juca was involved. Uh, They all told inconsistent stories, which I think if anybody had been paying attention back then would have realized didn't make a hell of a lot of sense. And almost all of those witnesses today have actually recanted under oath. A a total of four have actually recanted under oath. And of course, Russo has uh, made statements, including the one which is the subject of the current hearing, but also as recently as 2018, when he was re-interviewed by prosecutors who wanted to um, question him regarding a possible retrial after Juca's case was reversed the first time, he again indicated that he did this alone with his own gun. So there's a whole sordid saga here that to this day, we're still unpacking. I know the fight for John's freedom has taken some twists and turns as well. Um, even in the past few years, um, we've spoken to you about some of those as well. Yep. And so what is the latest twist? What happened recently? Well, we filed a motion in 2019 um, based upon evidence that was disclosed in 2018 in which a jailhouse informant named Joseph Ingram had a conversation with uh, Antonio Russo, again, Juca's co-defendant, while they were both incarcerated and went back and forth to Bellevue for medical appointments. And as they were talking, uh, as inmates sometimes are wont to do, uh, certainly someone like Russo, who's not bashful about his uh, criminal history, uh, he admitted to Ingram that he had murdered Mark Fisher, which is no surprise to anyone. But most notably to us, we learned that he um, told Ingram that after the crime, he tried to get Juga to take the murder weapon from him, but he refused, which is 180 degrees, the exact opposite of what the prosecution argued at trial in which they suggested was strong proof of Juga's guilt in which the Court of Appeals, which is the highest court in New York State, when they reinstated Juga's conviction uh, a few years ago, cited as strong evidence of his guilt, uh, which apparently warranted reversing uh, the opinion that had vacated his conviction. So this evidence was very important. It was the subject of the 
the recent motion that was held in the same court that denied Juca's last hearing and then was reversed by the mid-level appellate court. And last week, that court, after a after an evidentiary hearing, denied the motion for reasons which we are already addressing in filing papers with the appellate court that are just flatly wrong, both on the facts and the evidence. So again, you know, we're we're okay. It's a setback. Uh, every lost day of somebody being wrongfully convicted is a setback. But in terms of the long game, uh, we're fine. You'd use the word sorted in there a couple of times. You said the the sorted uh, details. And I'm wondering if that includes some of the characters that are involved in this, uh, this storyline. Yeah. I mean, the case is uh, it, it's crazy on, on many levels. Um, you know, the people who initially incriminated him and were pressured were his ex-girlfriend who, you know, she recanted in 2014 by reaching out to me and indicating that she wanted to do so. And to her credit, very courageously, uh, she put her name out there and she recanted under oath. Um, one of the other witnesses was his uh, this his friend, Albert Cleary, who um, has his own sordid history. I mean, he submitted a polygraph report a few months before he cooperated with the DA saying that he didn't know anything about the crime. That makes no sense. Obviously, uh, you have jailhouse informants, uh, a, a fellow by the name of John Avito, who in at the time of trial had as bad a credibility as any witnesses you had ever seen, but who, according to the DA, was an altruistic, honest person who had no interest in doing anything other than telling the truth, you know, left out the small details that he was facing an extensive prison sentence and uh, had been brought to court on his own case by Juca's prosecutor. Uh, his prosecutor, who, uh, you know, up until his conviction was reversed the first time, would brag uh, in public in furtherance of her media career that she had never lost a case, which uh, if that's the marketing pitch of a prosecutor should raise alarm bells for anyone. Um, so there's just the list goes on. Another witness who clearly was untruthful back then ended up being hired by the Brooklyn DA's office and later became a colleague of the trial prosecutor, if you will. It, it just goes on and on. It's it's crazy. You've been fighting for John for a long time now, and you've come across all of these like individuals and, and, you know, these setbacks and you just keep like getting back up, you dust yourself off and you, you seem very optimistic every time we speak that, you know, it wasn't this time, but you know what? Yeah. And you said, I think before we started recording, give it another, you know, 18 months, I think you said, and then we're going to get a shot at it again. Um, how, what keeps you what, what keeps you going? Well, I mean, I think the facts and law, once it gets out there, it, it'll be clear. And I'm, I'm convinced of that. Uh, you know, when I first got involved in this case, I had heard of it like anyone else who worked in New York in this profession. I mean, I remember reading about it when I was a prosecutor, uh, not in the Brooklyn DA's office, I might add, but in Manhattan. But, um, you know, when I first heard of this case, it was known as the grid kid murder case. And uh, by all accounts, if you had heard of Juca, you had heard of one of two things. You had heard that he was some gang banging ghetto mafia thug, uh, which is a bunch of nonsense. Or you had heard about uh, his mother, uh, Doreen, who, you know, was playing footsie with the juror after the fact and got him to say some pretty damning things, which also were that that's a story for another day. And that story has been said many times. But if you talk about John today, 
Uh, I think it's generally accepted by anyone who doesn't live in the bubble of the courthouse on J Street in Brooklyn or in the DA's office on J Street in Brooklyn, that this is now known as a classic wrongful conviction case, uh, overzealous prosecution and just egregious suppression of evidence, what you know we lawyers call Brady violations. So uh, we're getting there. And um, to be candid, after reading the opinion that we got last week, I feel more confident now than I did before it got denied, because if it's going to get denied, which we expected at this level, um, the first thing you want to do is look at the decision and see whether it leaves a path to appeal. And the good news, if you can call it that in this denial, is that this opinion uh, from the lower court is riddled with factual and legal errors which we will present to the proper people at the appellate court and have every confidence that they will hear the case and do what they did in 2018, which was swiftly reverse it. Okay. Can you take us through the process of this just a little bit? Um, Because I'm I'm trying to catch up and you mentioned appellate court and I understand that's a four person panel. It is. In Brooklyn, uh, we're talking about something called the appellate division, which in New York state is a mid-level appeals court. In a situation that we're dealing with now, uh, a a post-conviction motion to vacate as the defendant, you need permission for what we call leave to appeal. You have to have one judge from that court grant you permission to appeal. And that can be very daunting. I mean, you are at the mercy of one judge who does not issue a written decision other than to say permission granted or permission denied. And of course, if the permission is denied, then the courthouse door will be slammed in our face and we will be in trouble. I don't think that's going to happen, uh, again, based upon the evidence, the whole procedural history of this case. But if that leave is granted, which would probably be in a couple of months, and we were given permission to appeal, you're then you're looking at probably seven, eight, nine months to file an appeal. The prosecution would have a lot of time to respond. There would have to be argument in front of the court, and then a decision, decision excuse me, would be ordered. So the the unfortunate part of this whole process, even if you win, is you are probably talking about another year to two years of wrongful incarceration, even if you ultimately win at that level. And then you would be sent back to the lower court for the third or fourth time um, where the DA would theoretically determine whether they wanted to retry him, which they would say they will, but they never would because there's no case left. It's it's literally blown up. There There is nothing left of this case if a new trial were ordered and that became a final decision. It's interesting that it seems like it's it's one person's decision and, and Judge Danny Chun keeps sort of uh, saying no. And I, I saw that Doreen, John's mom, said something like Chun had made up his mind before the hearing. Do you think that's a, a fair thing to say? I'm not going to accuse Justice Chun of, of doing anything other than being wrong. I've, I've known him for several years, appeared in front of him many times. I like him personally. I respect him. He, you know, he treats me professionally. Um, however, sticking to the facts and law here, 
he couldn't be more wrong. Uh, that, that's all I will say. I, I'm not going to suggest for a second that he didn't listen to the evidence or had his mind made up. Uh, I understand where Doreen is coming from, um, and she's certainly entitled to her opinion. And, you know, although I, I'm John's lawyer and, you know, Doreen and I are aligned in this crusade, if you will, you know, I give her a wide berth to express her opinions and why, why shouldn't I? But I can't literally say that, uh, you know, a judge of the Brooklyn Supreme Court granted a hearing without literally keeping an open mind about what the evidence is. But again, he's wrong. And I have no problem saying that. And we look forward to demonstrating repeatedly at the next level why he was wrong again and again. And, uh, you know, I don't think he would fault us for saying that. It is what it is. What are some of the bullet points on why he was wrong? Why why is he wrong? Well, you, you need a, a big bulletin board if you want to bullet all the reasons. You'd probably need two or three. The, the bottom line issue in this hearing uh, was, did the prosecution disclose before trial the, the recorded statement of this jailhouse informant I mentioned earlier, who said that Russo told me that I tried to get Juca to take the gun and he didn't? No one would dispute that evidence that Juca did not take the murder weapon coming from Russo's mouth would be exculpatory evidence that is favorable to, favorable to him and was obligated to be disclosed. The prosecution at the hearing had no evidence whatsoever that the item was disclosed. Now, I was a prosecutor, co-counsel on this case was a prosecutor, Justice Chun was a prosecutor also in the Manhattan DA's office. Everybody knows that when you disclose Brady material, you document it. This is DA-1. Uh, in this particular case, again, you're talking about the so-called self-styled perfect prosecutor who never loses, who has a perfect uh, reputation for being meticulous, thorough, and, and doing all sorts of things. So you start with the premise, there was no record of this evidence being disclosed. That's red flag number one. Uh, the next thing you rely upon is both defense attorneys for Juca and Russo testified at this hearing and both testified adamantly that although they understandably couldn't remember every single detail of every single fact that occurred back in 2005, that they were very confident that this evidence was not disclosed to them for the simple reason they would have remembered it given how significant it was. Uh, for Russo's attorney, this, this informant, Ingram, would have buried Russo. And this lawyer said, I would have gone out if I had known about this and tried to interview this possible witness like I did with other witnesses who incriminated Russo. From Juca's standpoint, this would have been powerful evidence to the defense because it undermined the theory of the case against him, that he gave Russo a gun and more importantly, helped him conceal it after the crime, which the prosecutor argued demonstrated his guilt. Uh, it would have contradicted uh, other witnesses, including the other jailhouse informant who testified and was a veto, who was the subject of the last hearing, because Avito had claimed that Juca was actually with Russo and helped physically assault and kill uh, Mark Fisher when Russo's admission to Ingram would have established that Russo and Juca were at Juca's house immediately after the crime where Russo went to try to give him the gun, which meant Juca was not with him when, when the murder was committed. So the evidence uh, was overwhelming. There were other issues such as 
the recording that we were talking about was one of 15 recorded statements of witnesses. Uh, the DA tried to argue that, well, we documented that there were 15 recordings and stated our intent to disclose them, which suggests that it was disclosed. In other words, they were essentially saying if it walks like a duck and it quacks like a duck, it's probably a duck, which, you know, if the facts bear that out is normally a good argument. Well, the problem here is there was irrefutable proof that they did not disclose other of these similarly situated recordings, including one of a very important witness that they knew had made this statement. And it just inexplicably was not disclosed. So nevertheless, Justice Chun concluded that the defense at the hearing did not satisfy its burden by a preponderance of the evidence. That is a low, low evidentiary standard. Uh, for lay persons, you could think of it as maybe 50% plus just a tiny bit more. In other words, if the needle is tilting or in the middle, it needs to tilt to us ever so slightly. And even though the prosecutor, uh, Anna Siga Nicolazzi, could not testify that she disclosed the evidence. She could not introduce any proof whatsoever that she disclosed the evidence, even though every appellate court who considered Juca's last motion, con motion concluded that she previously suppressed other evidence, even though she did not properly disclose another recording. And even though both defense attorneys were adamant that I didn't get this evidence, evidence Justice Chan said, well, they probably got it. So the problem number one here is uh, I don't think I'm going out on a limb by saying, uh, with all due respect, I think that ruling is what we call against the weight of the evidence. The, the second critical problem, which in many ways is almost more shocking, if, if it can be, is there is a very particular standard of review that a court is supposed to apply in determining if the evidence was not disclosed, would any of this matter? You know, what, what you would consider of, does anybody care? What, what would be the impact on the jury? And that, that's called materiality analysis. And without getting too legalese, it's a very simple concept. In this particular case, the DA conceded that the standard of review is whether there was a reasonable possibility that the evidence, if it had been disclosed, could have, not probably would have, could have led to a more favorable verdict. In other words, you give the defense the benefit of the doubt as long as it's reasonably possible. That's a very low standard. All a reviewing court is supposed to do in that circumstance is say, well, it could have been. Uh, if the evidence is ridiculous and meaningless, then, of course, any court would say it doesn't matter. The problem here is that Justice Chun, for reasons which make no sense to me, applied the higher standard of review, which did not apply here because the evidence at issue was specifically requested by the defense. That's what triggers the lower standard. And he analyzed it under the standard of whether there was a reasonable probability that this evidence would have changed the verdict. So in other words, he gave the DA the benefit of the verdict rather than could it have possibly been better for the defense? He said, could he still have been convicted? In other words, he shifted the burden on the standard of review. That is gross error. And uh, that will be obvious to any court that reviews this. He also, in terms of the standard of review, failed to account for the fact that that the Court of Appeals, which in New York is the highest court in the state, previously said that uh, 
evidence related to John Avito, the other jailhouse informant from the last hearing, had in fact not been disclosed to the defense, and it should have been, although they found it didn't matter back then. But the point is, when a court reviews the impact of suppressed evidence, it is supposed to do what's called a cumulative analysis of all of the suppressed evidence, not a piecemeal, line-by-line, bit-by-bit analysis of the evidence, which means here what Justice Chun should have done but did not do was determine whether the evidence from this uh, Joseph Ingram fellow who spoke to Russo in combination with the suppressed Avito evidence from last time combined could have created a reasonable possibility of a different verdict. Instead, he didn't consider Avito and applied the higher standard, all while discrediting overwhelming evidence that the Ingram recording had not been disclosed to Juca. So again, uh, hence my confidence that this case will be reviewed by the court that already once, without even knowing the subject of the current motion, unanimously reversed the conviction just based upon a veto. Okay. So then it'll go back to the appellate and that four-person panel. And would that be the same four people? We st- if if the one judge grants us permission, which we believe will, but I don't, you know, we have to go through that process and submit the arguments, which we will, um, assuming we pass that hurdle, then it would, uh, after the briefs are filed, it would go back in front of a four person panel in the same court that reversed the conviction previously. Yes. Okay. And would those people be the same people or no, there's just a whole, pool uh, they, they could be, uh, but of course, you know, judge, come and go. I know like, for example, on the panel that we had last time, two of the judges are no longer on the court, which is normal. Uh, One of the judges who was on our panel is now the chief judge of that court. You know, these things just happen. Judges like anyone else come and go, but uh, it could be the same. It, It could be different, but my confidence is uninhibited, whoever it is. I mean, I think anybody who really assesses the evidence and pays attention we'll see that the lower court opinion that we're dealing with now is just flawed for for many, many reasons. I don't even think this is a close call. And we'll be right back after a quick word from our sponsors. Thanks to our sponsors. And now we're back to the program. And in regards to John's situation, have you ever come across this in your professional career or have you worked with any colleagues who have somebody in a similar situation where it's just so it's so uh, so clear and, and just a victim of all of these flaws? Not really. I mean, I, I you know, I think I, I've rarely seen a, a DA's office, including one that is now considered so progressive since, you know, corrupt Charles Hines is, is no longer steering it as he was back then, but, but I have, and, and this DA's office is better. They are than it was, but I, putting that aside, I have never seen a prosecutor's office clutch to such a bad conviction that is so obviously in need of, of being corrected. And, you know, you wonder why, and I think a lot of it has to do uh, certainly with, you know, who the trial prosecutor was. I think there's extreme embarrassment that they employed a witness who was untruthful. I mean, who's ever heard of that? Who has ever heard of a prosecutor's office hiring a dishonest witness on a case that they prosecuted and making that witness a colleague of the people who investigated the case? I mean, this is nuts. Yeah, it's pretty wild. Um, How is John doing? 
not great, uh, but that's, you know, I mean, it's still raw. I mean, it, it still happened uh, recently, but, you know, as he'll, he'll dust himself off, he's already getting better and, he, you know, he's very engaged in this process. So he'll understand what's going on and what we're doing. But at the same time, you know, he understands, even though we expected the denial at this level, he, you know, he knows what it means. It, it means possibly two more years, at least, even if we win. So, you know, on that level, uh, it's frustrating and it's disappointing and upsetting. But, you know, he's been through this before. Uh, I mean, this case has been up and down the New York court system with a little detour in the federal court system uh, about seven or eight years ago as well that, uh, you know, he knows he knows how this goes. And you had mentioned the the prosecutor in the case. Can you give a little uh, background on this person just to refresh the listeners memories? Her na- name is Anasiga Nicolazzi. Uh, you can watch her on Investigation Discovery and her show, ironically titled True Conviction, which is sickingly ironic. She styled herself as having a perfect record. 35 and 0, uh, you know, I've never lost a murder case. Uh, you know, that was her marketing pitch. Now, as I said, anytime you hear a prosecutor talk like that, it, it ought to be a red flag. But she is an extremely talented lawyer. Um, she was a good prosecutor. Um, you know, she's good at, at what she did. So it, it's not personal. I'm just here to tell you that her conduct in Juca's case was unethical, illegal, disgraceful. And it is what it is. One of the judges on the Court of Appeals shared that view, by the way, in the in a dissenting opinion. The one judge who voted to uphold uh, the appellate division reversal of Juca's conviction stated expressly in her dissenting opinion that she believed that Nicolazzi deliberately suppressed evidence and purposefully misled the court and defense. But um, she's no longer at the DA's office. She's doing her, her media career. Uh, although she no longer uses uh, the Fisher case as one of her signature achievements. And, you know, that started after the case was reversed in 2018. And uh, we sparred about that when she testified the last time. And I'm sure we sparred about it when we when I examined her uh, in 2015 as well. So we're not close, as you can imagine. No, but a professional uh, relationship is apparent, I think. Uh Look, again, she had a distinguished career. Uh, All I can tell you is on this case and one other one I know, which I don't want to talk to you about today, uh, her conduct was outrageous. And I will continue to press that point uh, on appeal, whether it upsets her or anyone else. I can't speak to that. You know, the people who handled this case committed poor judgment. And, and it's not justice. It's not justice uh, to the Fisher family. It's not justice to John and his family. Uh, it's an embarrassment to the criminal justice system as a whole. This is just one of those cases where nobody looks good. Everybody looks awful. And you had uh, reached out to us when the decision was made. Uh, why is it important to speak publicly about it for you? Well, I think people ought to know how awful this is and what's going on. And, you know, every time we do have a setback, uh, you know, the publicity wing of the DA's office likes to run to Twitter and needle people and pontificate about what it all means. And, and you know, they couldn't be more wrong. Um, and I think that it's important that people not be persuaded by that kind of uh, nonsense and realize that this is a wrongful conviction and uh, not to lose 
attention on this one, uh, that it, it's going to be coming back. And I think when the, the final chapter of this story is written, uh, you'll see John and Doreen standing at the top of the mountain and it's just going to take some time. But we attention to this is good. You know, they actually tried to use your, your podcast at the hearing as some kind of proof against us. One of the times you interviewed Doreen, which was ridiculous, but I'm not sure if you guys were aware of that. No, no. Um, no, did they, did they no. leave a five-star review? Uh, <laughs> I, I would suspect not, but they, uh, it, it didn't actually come into evidence, but they tried. It was kind of a idiotic stunt, but whatever. Wow. Well, speaking of idiotic stunts, you, you mentioned that the office takes to Twitter after, uh, after a decision like that? Well, yeah, the, the PR spokesman frequently loves to go on to Twitter on a private account, of course, you know, during office hours and just make sure everyone who pays attention understands and make sure that everyone understands that uh, the court denied the motion and it is obviously correct. And it is obvious that this evidence was disclosed and it is obvious that Juca is guilty and, and all of that. And, uh, you know, against my better judgment, I actually kicked back a little after Monday in some of this. Uh, I probably shouldn't do that, but um, I, I, it's, it's juvenile. It's silly. But uh, in light of, of how the office defends the conviction publicly, it, it's critical that as many people as possible know the facts, know the story, read the briefs, uh, you know, don't read the Twitter statements of the BR, uh, the district attorney's talking head, read the legal filings, read the evidence, read the exhibits, ask why four witnesses have recanted, ask why Russo continues to say that he did it alone, which is clearly disserving to him. There's no reason for him to do that unless it's true. And, uh, you know, consider the simple ask that we've always made, which is what is the big deal about giving John a fair trial? And the, the answer is there won't be a retrial because there, there can't be because as I said to you earlier, the, the case has been completely gutted and eviscerated. It's gone. I'm now perusing uh, your Twitter feed and reading a little bit of the sparring, the needling that uh, went back and forth. And you're so right. It is, it is, uh, it's not necessary, but did you get a, did you get a little satisfaction out of it? Well, it pissed me off to be honest with you, because one of the comments was this asinine statement that this was some kind of money grab. And uh, I mean, John Juca has been in prison since December 21st, 2004. And I'm now talking to you guys in February of 2022. And when the, the spokesman for the Brooklyn DA's office is gloating about a case like this and saying that this was in essence, I don't have the Twitter in front of me, but it, it's there, that this is in essence, nothing more than a pathetic attempt at a money grab. Then I, I think the district attorney's office ought to reevaluate its priorities and their public perception, um, notwithstanding some of the other good work that they've been doing. But uh, on this case, they're, they're wrong. And th their publicity in the way they've handled it is just really off. Well, we've always said here, say it in a tweet, it's a cop out. Say it on a podcast, it's a knockout. We've never said that, but that's awesome. <laughs> uh, you know, I, you guys for years have been, you know, spreading the message and uh, that's good. And, you know, I'm happy to talk about it until anybody says, I don't want to listen to this guy anymore. Um, 
you know, publicity matters in a case like this. There, there's no jury. There's no, not, none of those concerns that usually apply. And when the DA's office is spinning a bunch of nonsense, you know, there, there's no alternative but for us to, to set the record straight. And we can agree or disagree whether the, the decision was correct, whether this was a fair trial, or whether there was guilt or innocence, but it ought to be done in a professional way. And it is a sharp elbow business. So I can understand they get upset when they get criticized by me or others for engaging in misconduct, unethical conduct, suppressing evidence. But uh, when we do that, we back it up with, you know, exhibits and evidence, uh, not on, you know, tweets. And uh, and how is Doreen doing? I know we, we spoke about her a little bit. How is she doing after all this? Well, you know, again, up and down, but um, she is, look, she's mother justice. So uh, she knows how this works. And, you know, I don't want to get into state secrets, which I won't do, but I can tell you that in in talking about this uh, in a very candid and emotional way, a day or two before the decision came out, we knew what the decision was going to be. Not, not because I'm suggesting that the judge mailed it in before granting a hearing. That's not what I'm suggesting. But, you know, I've been doing this a long time. And generally at the lower court level, these motions are not granted. It wasn't granted the last time, despite overwhelming evidence. So uh, she understood that. But nevertheless, when you hear it in, in real time, you know, the emotions take over. So she did have a little bit of an emotional uh, outburst in the courtroom, which I believe she not as bad as the one she had in 2016. But again, uh, you know, she's entitled to her opinion about what happened. Um, and, you know, many times when, when she gets upset about this, she will include, if not every time, I feel terrible for what the Fishers are going through. Um you know, her her focus is very clear. It's on the injustice in the case, the evidence, and, and what happened with the verdict. Uh, it's always sympathetic and, and to the Fishers. And, you know, anyone who has been involved in this process can see that as well. Um, you know, I've been dealing with this case since 2013. I can't tell you how many conferences in court, court appearances, uh, at every level, at the lower court, in the appellate division, in the court of appeals, how many times now I've seen uh, you know a large contingent of, of the Fisher family at every single appearance. They've never missed one, and you know you can't help but feel you know the raw pain still that that they go through, and I feel terrible about that. But the only thing I can say beyond that is uh, you know justice doesn't pick sides. You know if the outcome of this case is not just uh, for John, if he got a didn't get a fair trial. That's not justice for them either, because, you know, they have been conditioned by the DA's office to believe for so many years that, you know, this is what happened. Uh, You know, John ordered him to do it, uh, Russo to do it as part of a gang killing. Well, if that's not it, John uh, uh, gave Russo a gun because Russo wanted to rob him. Well, if that's not it, then what he really did is, you know, him... And Russo went to an ATM machine together and beat him up and did that. And if if that's not it, we'll find something else. And I think it's really interesting to note, um, just to kind of circle back at how sordid and ridiculous this case really is. The Fishers have always believed 
that Albert Cleary, star witness to the DA's office who submitted the polygraph report that contradicted his testimony, they have always believed that he was involved in this crime and the DA used him as a key witness. They have always believed that a young woman by the name of Angel DiPietro was involved, not involved in the actual crime, but was dishonest about what she knew and saw. She's the one who was hired by the Brooklyn DA's office years later. The Fishers actually sued Cleary and DiPietro after the crime. They tried to get evidence from the DA's office to track the lead about what they knew, and they were stonewalled by the DA's office. There's an article, you can find it in the New York Post in 2006, where it was reported that the Heinz DA's office was protecting uh, the release of information that would have, in, in the theories, uh, excuse me, in the Fisher's opinion, helped them learn more about uh, Fisher and DiPietro. So, you know, again, they I don't believe Mark Fisher's family believes they've ever gotten the real story. In the DA's mind, they got their conviction. And at least up until recently, Nicolazzi could brag that this was one of her perfect convictions. I, I just think the whole the whole thing is rotten to its core and, and is just awful. In uh, what capacity was uh, this DiPietro hired? I had said that, uh, you know, her father was very close to Charles Hines, donated a lot of money to him. And apparently in, in you know, Hines world back then, it wasn't a problem to hire a obviously dishonest witness in a prominent murder case. As they say, you know, only in Brooklyn. Damn. Wow. Okay. <laughs> and is, uh, is John still in Rikers? Cause that was the last time we spoke. He was in Rikers. No, uh, no, he's in state prison where he was sent after the court of appeals reversed uh. his conviction, uh, where he'll be for the foreseeable future. So, um, although some would say, you know, state prison, accommodation wise is, is probably better than Rikers. Everything you hear about Rikers is true. So, um, but no, I mean, he's, uh, he's upstate and he won't be in Rikers um, for any time in the near future. If he is in Rikers, uh, given the posture of the case now, it's a good thing for us temporarily. Uh, I see. Okay. Um, do you have anything else uh, you'd like to say? Just, uh, you know, onward and upward. Uh, you know, we're not dismayed. We're not uh, dispirited. We are, you know, eye on the eye on the ball, eyes on the prize. It, it's a long road. Um, you know, we, we did take some high heat and but you have to get up, dust yourself off, get back in the batter's box and, and get ready to hit the next pitch. And, and that's what we're doing. So we'll be filing papers in just uh, about a week or so, maybe a little more. Very strong application, I think, uh, for leave to appeal. The D.A. will. Of course, you know, as they always do, argue that there's no reason for it because this is such a simple open and shut case. Uh, we think it will be granted and we think his appeal will work. We do. And what is there that we can um, sort of give as our uh, call to action to the listeners? Is there anything that the listeners who support John and, and support Doreen and support you, what, what can they do? Read, 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 read the briefs, read the exhibits, read the evidence, read the recantations read the trial transcripts, all of that stuff. Uh, it's easily available, I think, on uh, John's website, which is maintained by somebody close to him. 
Uh, I'm certainly happy to share anything that's in the public record, uh, filings, briefs, and uh, transparency is good. Uh, you want to shine a light on this, uh, you know, rattle and hum style, just show, shine the light. Uh, that's what we want. The more people who see this, the more people who cannot believe what this case was, as opposed to, you know, 10 years ago, when everybody just assumed uh, that he was a gang banging killer. But then people read and the more they read, the more they learn. It's true. Awesome. Great advice. Read everyone. Read the stuff. Well, reading is good anyway, <laughs> but particularly here. Yes. Uh, yeah. If you're, if you're looking for something to read. <laughs> I listen, I, you know, people love this true crime stuff. I get it. I mean, I have mixed feelings about it because when you, you know, you live in it, it's a little different maybe, yeah. but um, sure. it is it, putting that all aside, recognizing that this is a, a powerful uh, thing today and everybody is into this. This, this case is a poster child for the true crime crowd. And I would encourage them to, you know, look into this and explore it and ask questions uh, of whoever I, I talk to people about this case all the time. I'm happy to share, spread the gospel. The, the gospel of Bettero. I like the sound of that. Oh, that's our episode title. Yeah. Well, <laughs> Uh, it's not so much me. It's, you know, it's, uh, it, it's all out there. And the sad thing is, I, I know we're getting close to the end here. The sad thing is this was so readily obvious if, if everyone was paying attention before the trial. I mean, wh when they started offering four different theories of if it's not this, it must have been that. And they're offering witnesses who contradict each other. I mean, they offered his old girlfriend in Cleary, who said that at the same conversation, that entirely different things were said. And, and it devolved to the point where Albert Cleary accused uh, the ex-girlfriend of tampering with evidence during this meeting, and she denied it. And at the trial, he's screaming and yelling that I saw her tamper with evidence, and she's screaming and yelling that I didn't do it, which you know sounds comical on one level, but it also means one of them, at least on this point, conclusively committed perjury. I mean, where are the people paying attention to this? Um, you know, and then they use a jailhouse informant who says, I, I'm just here to do the right thing when the guy has a rap sheet that, you know, is longer than war and peace. Uh, and he's facing a lengthy prison sentence. But he and Nicolazzi says, of all the witnesses, he's the only one who's here who's doing this, you know, out of the goodness of his heart. Who believes any of that? I mean, what rational person, if they knew the truth, would believe that? And because a lot of this evidence was suppressed and not before the jury, you know, they got hoodwinked. And, and here we are 15 years later trying to correct that process. Well, we are uh, an instrument for however you need to use us to get the word out there. So we have no problem doing that. And I hope that John is feeling uh, positive and, and motivated still. And I hope that Doreen is feeling the same. And, you know, despite having some emotional moments, I mean, I think that's warranted. And I think that's healthy to get that out of the system. They have good days and bad days. But the yeah. important part is they're, they're both motivated for the fight ahead and ready to go on. And that's what you have to do. You either quit or you fight. 